Our text for today comes from Matthew chapter 6, continuing our study in the Sermon on the Mount and in St. Matthew's Gospel. Hear now God's holy word. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the spirit that rested upon your son as he spoke these words. We thank you for that spirit who inspired Matthew to inscribe them for us, to preserve them for us. And Father, we ask that same spirit would guide us now as we understand and read and consider these things so that we may apply them rightly, deliver us from all error, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. I saw something pretty amazing the other day. I couldn't wait to tell you all about it today. I saw a Subaru in Cary that didn't have a single bumper sticker on it. Can you believe that? It's not a single sticker. And what's more is that it was parked in the Whole Foods parking lot and didn't have a single sticker on it. Isn't that amazing? I'm joking. I made that up. I was not in the Whole Foods. Lest you think I'm, I ever go to Whole Foods, I'm, I'm not. But um, the... The number of bumper stickers on the back of a vehicle is directly proportional to the degree of leftist views held by the driver. Uh, If you see a car covered in bumper stickers, their messages are more than likely overwhelmingly liberal. Why is that? what's, What's going on there? Is it that they believe their politics make them better people than everyone else and they want us all to know about it? They all want us to see what a good, virtuous person they are? Or is that their positions are more easily reduced to short slogans that don't require a lot of reflection and expansion and critical thinking? I mean, there's not a lot of room for intelligent discussion on the back of your vehicle. You can't post carefully worded essays. You can't post books. Um, you, you, can't, you can't post articles on your car. Just little sound bites, just single words like coexist or... Um, you know, uh, tolerance or equality, as if you've actually said something, as if you've made an argument by just posting one word on the back of your vehicle. I've never seen a sticker that just said, work. I've never seen that before. That might be something you could try. Or what about when they post little phrases on their cars that, that openly contradict each other? A Prius might have a sticker that says, free Tibet. Okay, that sounds nice. What am I supposed to do with that? How am I supposed to free Tibet? How can I free Tibet? How do you want to free Tibet? Should we go to war with China? Is that what you're asking for? Oh no, because the next sticker down says war is not the answer. So we're in a little pickle, aren't we? How do we free Tibet if war is not the answer? Don't think about it too long. Don't think about it. Rather, we should consider the courage that it takes, the unbridled moral purity and goodness that it requires to peel the back off of a sticker and to slap it on the trunk of your car. You have done something really important there and virtuous and honorable, and you should be praised. Now, 
I recognize that poking fun at our leftist neighbors is going after low-hanging fruit. It's really, it's really easy. But goofy bumper stickers do provide an obvious example of the kind of vanity and self-promotion that we are all prone to in all kinds of different forms. None of us are immune to this impulse. There is an ever-present temptation for us to telegraph our own virtue through empty, superficial, vain actions that have more to do with framing us in the best light possible, drawing attention to our goodness rather than actually accomplishing anything or risking anything or sacrificing anything. It's more important that we appear to be righteous than to actually be so. We have this ravenous hunger to have our virtue acknowledged for people to affirm for us that we are actually good people. There's a kind of childish anxiety about what people think about us. We seek approval from even strangers. We care what strangers think about us. We don't want to stand out. We don't want to be different. We want to be numbered with the acceptable people who have all the approved fashionable ideas and we can express those ideas with the same smug self-righteousness as they do. Now, Jesus brings up this very behavior here in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember where we are in Matthew's gospel. Jesus has begun his ministry up in Galilee, far away from the seat of power, of political and religious power in Jerusalem. He's among the tradesmen and the farmers and the fishermen and the merchants. Jesus is in flyover country. Think of it that way. Jesus is way with those people, and he's gathered a multitude on the side of a mountain, in order to announce the principles, the values, the theology of his mission. He says here, this is what my followers look like. Here are how my disciples think and act. Here's how they fulfill my father's law, how they obey my father. Throughout this sermon, he repeatedly makes contrast between the right fulfillment of his father's law and the way the scribes and the Pharisees treat his father's law. The scribes and the Pharisees are these self-appointed experts and the purest followers of the law who multiplied all of these extra ordinances and expectations. And what they ended up doing is turning God's good and perfect law into an unbearable yoke. And Jesus points out how the scribes and Pharisees aren't even keeping this law themselves. Their hearts are full of murder and revenge and adultery. And you can't take them at their word because they don't keep their oaths. They get caught up in uh, this, this hateful, spiteful, unloving behavior that actually ignores God's law, doesn't obey it. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is calling the people in Galilee to come apart and not to act like them. You must not behave like the scribes and Pharisees. Their righteousness is no righteousness at all. Don't follow them. Go hard in the opposite way. And in, in the sermon, Jesus is painting in large figures. He's using a lot of bold language to shock them into seeing the reality of just how far the Pharisees have removed themselves from law keeping. If you assume that the Pharisees, oh yeah, those were the people who bent over backwards to obey God's law, that's not what Jesus is telling us here. The Pharisees are the ones who are bending over backwards to avoid doing God's law. They're not obeying God's law. Now in chapter 6, Jesus addresses the uber piety 
of the Pharisees, the extreme ostentatious displays of religious virtue. And Jesus criticizes all these as empty because they are performances before an audience of men rather than acts of private devotion and worship before God. In short, the Pharisees were the original virtue signalers. Everything they do is to draw attention to how virtuous and holy and pious they are. So Jesus takes on the three big spiritual disciplines that the Pharisees taught were most important, almsgiving, praying, and fasting. I read just the first few verses a minute ago. I want to keep reading, pick up in chapter 5 and read through what he says about prayer and fasting. Verse 5, Jesus says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you've shut your door, pray to your father who is in secret. Pray to your father who is in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. For your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Moreover, when you fast... Do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward, but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your father who is in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So Jesus isn't disputing the value of almsgiving, of praying, or fasting. What he is doing is correcting the attitude and the motive behind them. If you do these things with the primary intention of bringing glory to yourself, then you have your reward. You have lost the spiritual value of these actions. The word that Jesus uses in chapter 6, verse 1, when he says, when you do your charitable deeds, take heed that you don't do them before men. That word charitable deeds is the same word righteousness that Jesus used over in chapter 5, verse 20, when Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Same word, uh, same word in both, both places, righteous charitable deeds. One suggested translation of this word is covenant behavior, describing those actions that are at the heart of covenant keeping. So, so these, the things that he's working through now, the things that he's mentioning, these, these are the things, this is what it means to keep God's law, to obey him, to please him. Now, as we saw in chapter five, the Pharisees aren't actually obeying him or loving his law at all. So when he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, that's not an impossible thing to do. That is a possible thing to do because their righteousness is not righteousness at all. In fact, you can, you must exceed their righteousness and you'll do it if you do what Jesus says, if you obey him. 
Uh, so in chapter 5, Jesus dealt with the covenant prohibitions, which the Pharisees misunderstood, misapplied, abused. The prohibitions like don't kill, don't commit adultery, which Jesus then unpacks and elevates and reapplies to his people. So in chapter 5, we dealt with prohibitions. In chapter 6, we deal with covenant requirements that are mishandled, uh, abused, misapplied. Almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. And all of these are being abused and mishandled in the same direction. Almsgiving, prayer, and fasting are being used by the Pharisees as if they were nothing more than a t-shirt or a bumper sticker that just scream, approve of me. Come here, watch me. Watch what I'm doing. Listen to me. Acknowledge me. And tell me I am a good person. Observe my piety and, and give me your approval. Now, some of you careful student of scriptures may be thinking back to something Jesus said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount in uh, chapter 5, uh, verse 14. He says, you're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now you're thinking, wait a minute. Over here, we're told to let our light shine so that men can see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And now over here in chapter 6, he's taking it back and saying, do your acts of covenant faithfulness in secret. Well, what is it? Do we do these in public so that our light shines or we do it in secret so we don't seek the approval of men? How do we resolve this? Well, Jesus is not contradicting himself. He's correcting in two different ways. He's correcting two bad tendencies. In the first place, when he says, let your light shine, what he's doing, he's teaching that our faithfulness, our covenant faithfulness, our good works are lights that shine into a dark world. There are discernible differences in the way that we handle our business and the way that unbelievers hand their, handle their business. There are our, our public affairs, how we manage conflicts, how we live as married people, how we respond to our enemies, how we keep our promises, these all exhibit a significant difference from the way that the world handles their affairs. And unbelievers are able to see that there is a difference. They may not agree with what we do, but they're able to see that there is a great, there's a vast difference in the way we handle our public lives. We don't live the way they live. And Jesus wants that to happen. Jesus wants our works to shine as lights so that men may see them and glorify his Father in heaven. We don't do these to glorify us. We don't do these to broadcast our moral hygiene, to have people approve of us. No. Uh, over in chapter 5, he says, this is so that we, they will glorify your Father in heaven. Now, in this place, in chapter 6, He's talking about private acts of devotion. You see, over in chapter 5, he's talking about public affairs, public acts of duty. Here, he's talking about private acts of worship that are to be performed before not an audience of men, but before God alone. Men are not the audience for our prayer. They're not the audience for our fasting or for our giving. And these things are done before the face of God alone. Why? to glorify God alone. So the public life of the Christian and the private life of the Christian both glorify God. And what Jesus is correcting is that there is a way of hiding what should be public. 
because we're afraid of men or because we're uh, fearful of persecution or we're fearful of conflict, we tend to hide what should be made public. And there's also a tendency to publicize what should remain private. And Jesus corrects both of those. So Jesus is really addressing two different sinful tendencies in these two sections. In the first place, he's, he's addressing our cowardice when he says, let your light shine. In the second place, he's addressing our vanity when he says, don't do your acts of worship before others. And it requires wisdom for us to know what to do and when. But the basic principle is the same in both cases. Our public life of obedience must be open and bold so that our light shines. Why? To glorify God. And our private life of devotion must be secret so that we don't boast about it. So that why? So that we might glorify God. God. In every case, the supreme object of our life, always and only, is to please God. To please God, to please him only, and to please him always and in everything. That is the goal of our life. That is the purpose of our life. So Jesus repeats the name of his father 10 times in these 18 verses here in chapter 6. His father is the audience of our worship and devotion. We fast before our Father, not before men. We pray to our Father, not before men. We, we give before the face of our Father. Our Father in heaven is the audience of all of our charity and devotion. I pointed out several times how throughout this sermon, Jesus uses hyperbole and comedic images. Uh, when, when you think about what he's saying and who he's speaking to, I think I think he had him rolling in the aisles the whole time. I, I really, when you read this, I think uh, uh, laughter rippled through the, the congregation at certain points. And here's another place where he does this when he describes how the Pharisees pay their tithes. He paints this hilariously pathetic picture of a pompous man on his way to put his tithe into the collection at the temple or to take his gift to the poor. And in front of him, as he goes, marches the trumpeters, blowing a fanfare, playing a pomp and circumstance as he walks, attracting the attention of the crowd, as if he has a herald out there with a trumpet saying, announcing Lord Thaddeus, now come to bestow the poor widow with a crust of bread from the back of his pantry. And it's so silly and so ridiculous. And it's hard to imagine that anybody would have literally done that, 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 that they would have literally had a marching band following them around as they paid their tithes and they helped the poor. But Jesus is saying that's how they behave. That's how they act. They might as well have had a marching band and a herald lead them everywhere they want, announcing their ever so humble acts of charity and duty. And this calls us to consider, is there any way that we do that same thing? Is there, any, is there anything that we do that's even similar to that? Do we ever sound a metaphorical trumpet before an act of devotion? Or do you ever hope that somebody else blows a horn for you that attracts attention to what you're doing? When you give, when you help, when you serve, is it okay with you if the thing is not publicly recognized? By the way, I want to say that there are things that go on in the ways that you love each other and the ways that you serve the body of Christ that we don't see and don't get publicized and don't get known. And I am still absolutely deeply grateful for every single 
one of them, every single one of your acts of charity and love and sacrifice for each other. And when I do see it, I do thank you. And I, there are times where it really do, we really do want to make a big deal out of it and say thank you, but you don't catch every one. And if you're doing it humbly for the Lord, it doesn't matter to you if it's publicly recognized. Is it possible for you to give and help and serve without documenting it for everyone to see? And is that okay? Or do you really need a photo op? There was a fad for a while where people were giving food and money to homeless people, but filming it and then putting it on YouTube for some reason. So they were, they were filming themselves virtuously helping uh, uh, you know, homeless people and then posting it to the internet for some reason. And you think, what? You have your reward. Why are you doing it? Could you do that if you weren't filming? Could you do that if you didn't think that you were going to post it to the internet? Is it possible to clean up a city park without posting pictures on the local community message board for internet points? Is it possible for us to just do what's right and what God requires of us without any acclaim, without any notice, without any praise from men, without any self-congratulations? without using pictures from our missions trip as part of our carefully curated online persona? Are we able to do that? Is that the whole reason we went, so that we'd have the pictures? Jesus encourages a kind of holy self-forgetfulness. When he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, by the way, that's another hyperbolic statement. I'm sure got a little uh, Twitter uh, 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 giggles throughout the crowd. How can our right hand keep secrets from our left hand? Well, Jesus is saying that, and the point is clear. There is to be a significant lack of self-awareness when it comes to our giving and our worship. If you don't practice this, if you don't practice this kind of holy self-forgetfulness, you'll end up suffering from a kind of crippling social anxiety around serving and loving and obeying the Lord. This, this social anxiety that's consumed with thoughts of how other people are interpreting our actions. What, what will they say? What will they think if I do this or say that? Are they watching how I stand? Are they, are they picking apart my choice of words? Are they watching how I cross my arms? Are they criticizing every part of me? There's this deep insecurity that drives all of this self-absorption, thinking that other people are as interested in you as you are in yourself. Now, I don't know if this is good news or not. I think this is good news. But nobody's thinking about you that much. You are way more interested in yourself than anybody else is. And if you think that everybody else is as interested in you as you are, am I the one to tell you? You're wrong. <laughs> Nobody thinks about you. Nobody is consumed with what's going on in your head the way you're consumed with what's going on in your head. And the good news, that really is good news, that's liberating because I know then that I can do what God says and I can aim to please him in everything. And I really don't require anyone else's approval or praise, that nobody really is thinking me about me that much. They're consumed with what's going on in their head, not in, in my internal dialogue. There's a great comfort in letting go of all of that and just saying, God is my audience, not everyone else. Uh, there's also this weird thing where that person that you're really trying to, um, 
you're, you're really trying to get their approval. You're really seeking their good pleasure over what you're doing in such a way that they live in your head and everything that you do and you say, you're trying to massage it so that they'll approve. Isn't it funny that you, you don't ever really like that person, person very much? I mean, it's, it, sometimes they're really mean to you. And yet here you are still groveling for their attention and uh, for their approval. We're freed for all of that. We're, we're, we're delivered from all of that when we practice this kind of self-forgetfulness that Jesus describes, not letting our left hand know what our right hand is doing. Jesus repeats uh, in each section here, he says, let your charitable deed be done in secret so that your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So pray in secret, fast in secret, give in secret, so that your father will reward you openly. Your father who sees in secret sees and knows everything, and he doesn't miss anything. You don't have to worry about him misinterpreting your motives or misunderstanding your intentions. He knows when you give, he knows exactly what it cost you, exactly what, it, what you gave up. He knows the cries of your heart when you fast and pray. His spirit groans with you in your travails. His son shares with you in your sufferings. There are no secrets before God. There is nothing to hide. And so nothing gets by him. He hears everything. He sees everything and he rewards and answers perfectly. The problem is, is that if you're living for the praise of men, they are apt to miss what you're doing for their approval and for their attention. You gin up and script up this whole thing that you're going to do to get the approval of somebody else, and then you do it, and they're looking the other way. They're not paying attention, or they misinterpret it, or they misjudge or misevaluate what you've done. So you're not even going to get the approval that you were seeking, and you're going to be disappointed. And on top of that, Jesus says, if you do that, well, you have your reward. If you did that for them, and what a letdown that is. What a pathetic reward that is. When the Lord Jesus talks about how the hypocrites pray, he says they love to stand in the synagogues and on the corner of the streets so that they may be seen by men. This is not a prohibition on public prayer. The Lord Jesus prayed publicly. The apostles prayed uh, together publicly. The Old Testament saints pray publicly. Daniel famously prayed publicly. We're given the Psalms, which are written prayers to pray together in assembly. See, the problem with the hypocrites is not that they're praying publicly, it's their motivation. They do it. Why? To be seen by men. So if, if you're so inclined to think, and this is what Jesus is saying, if you're inclined to think that public prayer makes you look good and the reason for public prayer and public acts of devotion is to demonstrate what a great prayer vocabulary you have, it would be better for you to go into the deepest recess of your house close the door and learn how to pray there. A healthy, faithful prayer life in private will train you for public worship. It will train you to lead others in prayer by forgetting yourself, by not being consumed with perceptions of other people, but only consumed with and only thinking about your supplications and intercessions toward God. Jesus went on to say, don't use vain repetitions the way that the heathens do. 
that Jesus is not rebuking the use of the prayer that he's about to give us right after that. He doesn't say, don't use vain repetitions. And oh, by the way, I'm going to give you something to vainly repeat. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He's, he's not saying don't, Jesus is not saying don't use written prayers even. The apostles prayed with one accord. They lifted up their voice, praying the same thing together. The only way to do that is with a memorized prayer or a written prayer that you pray together. That's not what Jesus is rebuking. When Jesus rebukes vain repetition, we need to understand that not all repetition is vain repetition. He's talking about something very specific. He's talking about the vain repetition of the heathen. He mentions that, the vain repetition of the heathen. In idolatrous religions... There's no content to their prayers. They're just repeating the same phrases over and over, like the prophets of Baal um, in, in their showdown with Elijah and Elijah, Elijah's confrontation with them. The prophets of Baal just keep saying over and over, O Baal, answer us. O Baal, answer us. O Baal, answer us. O Baal, answer us. When Paul goes to Ephesus, they have a chant. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Or how the Buddhists and the Hindus all just say, Om, over and over, Om. You can hold that just as long as you can until you run out of breath, Om. Or how the Romanists just repeat, Hail Mary, Hail Mary, full of grace. Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus. Over and over and over and over. You just say the same thing over and over, and it has a hypnotizing effect. That is, that is vain repetition. You drive yourself to this kind of mindless ecstasy and exhaustion. And they, they keep saying it, thinking that they will be heard the more times they say it. They think they will be heard, Jesus says, for their many words. But self-hypnotism or, or reciting vain mantras over and over in public so that everyone will see how religious you are, that's not prayer. You aren't carrying on a dialogue with God. God is a person and you have a personal relationship with your creator, and you can carry on a conversation with him. You can bring to him your requests. You can thank him for things that he's given to you. You can confess your sins to him and ask him to forgive you for those things. You can bring your sorrows. You can bring your happy moments. God is a person, and he speaks to you, and you speak to him. You don't just repeat the same thing over and over. You know, we're not like a toddler who says, you know, can I get a toy dad? 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 That's not a relationship. That's a mantra. That's vain repetition. And so Jesus gives us a model prayer as an example of the kind of prayer that's pleasing to the father. We're going to look at the Lord's prayer more in detail next week, but Jesus just tells us, he says, you address him as father. He's not some distant monad who you don't have a relationship to or connection to. He is your father. Address him as father. You praise him, you align your desires with his goodwill, your kingdom come, your will be done. See, we're aligning our pleasure with him. Uh, you ask for what you need, give us this day our daily bread. You ask for forgiveness, you ask for deliverance, you pray, praise him some more. Again, we'll, we'll study that more in detail next week. But praying like this is a conversation. It's not saying magic words. It's not magic formulas or magic incantations, thinking that you have to get God's attention or cajole him into answering you or to provoke him to wake him up by repeating some vain mantra over and over. That's empty and there's no spiritual value to it. 
Jesus says your father hears you and he knows what you need before you ask him. Again, that's a that's a, what a heavenly father does. That's what a father does is to know your needs and look forward to hearing from you. After this, Jesus touches on fasting. What is fasting? Fasting is a spiritual discipline for unusual or exceptional circumstances so that you can focus your heart and mind on prayer and worship. In fasting, you learn how to tell yourself no. You learn how to tell your flesh no. You discipline your body. You curb your appetites. There are times where we need to focus all my heart and we need to focus all your mind on petitioning God and worshiping him and eliminating distractions, knowing that I don't deserve anything. I don't deserve food. I don't, I don't deserve good things. I'm a contingent creature entirely dependent upon God's mercies. And so that's what the fa- uh, pra- practice of fasting uh, drives home. Jesus himself fasted. The church at Antioch fasted and prayed when they sent out Paul and Barnabas. They're examples of fasting throughout scripture. It's a commendable personal act of devotion and worship. And Jesus says, if you're fasting, don't advertise it. Don't broadcast it. Don't walk around all day asking for attention, hoping that a coworker will say, why are you so sad? So that you can respond, because I didn't eat anything today. I'm fasting. Jesus says, disfiguring your face, purposely looking sad. Jesus says you have your reward. If you use the period before Easter as a time of devotion and growth and periodic fasting, if you, if you use that for that purpose, don't tell people. Don't say, I'm tired because I'm giving up Starbucks for Lent or I'm giving up Twitter for Lent, so I'm so bored. Jesus says you have your reward. You have to reevaluate what you're doing. Jesus says if you're fasting, instead, anoint your head and wash your face. If you've been weeping in sackcloth and ashes, wash it off before you go around other people. While we're on the subject, I get this question every year, and this is a good time to talk about it. So uh, this is why I don't advocate for, and we don't use ashes on our, in our Ash Wednesday service. I don't think it's particularly helpful. There's, there's something that looks sacramental about that, and I, just, I recoil against anything that looks sacramental that, that isn't actually a sacrament. We've got two excellent sacraments, uh, we're always trying to add to them and make them more special and more, you know, meaningful in some way. And we just leave them alone and just do them the way that Jesus said do them. And I think we're going to be actually pretty good. So in light of that, I don't want act- to add to, add to the sacraments by doing something that looks or feels or seems sacramental. However, if you think there's value to having ashes on your head, and to be fair, that's something people do in the Bible. You weep in sackcloth and ashes. If you do the ashes, okay. You go wash your face before you go anywhere else. Jesus says, wash your face. You don't walk around with a mark on your head all day so that people know you went to church. Jesus says, you have your reward. Wash your face. And that directive, the thrust of what he says there, really sums up this whole section. Don't do your acts of devotion to God in a way that says, hey, look at me. Look what I'm doing over here. Don't do that. Don't live your life as if it's one big performance to carefully construct this image of the person you think everyone else expects you to be. Live your life, when it comes to your worship and devotion, live your life before an audience of one. And your true, bold, confident, self-effacing, 
modest life will be a light that causes men to notice that there's something really different about you and they will glorify your father in heaven. The real problem with, with that kind of life of, of enslaving yourself to other people's expectations, of trying to, uh, trying to oppress, impress everybody all the time, the problem with that is that those expectations are almost never clearly communicated. Most of the time, you can only assume that you know what other people expect of you. You, you assume what people think is pious or righteous, but human expectations are fallible. Someone may expect something of you that's not actually a good thing. They may expect something of you that's foolish or sinful. And those expectations are always fluctuating. They're never static. They may expect you to do this thing in this situation, but you should have done this thing over here in that other situation according to their unwritten code of situational ethics. That's always changing. Devoting your life to be constantly impressing other people is a real good way to be constantly frustrated never satisfied, never, ever, ever at peace or rest. If you want to be happy, try pleasing God. The things that God requires of us, the things that please him are the same things that make us happier. They're the same things that make us more at home in our bodies and in our callings and in our roles. The things that God requires of us improve our relationships with others. And they're clearly communicated. It's not a guess. You don't have to wonder, and you don't have to assume anything. The things that God requires of us are infallible. They will nev never lead you into wickedness or error, and they don't change with the times, and they don't change with the popular fashion. So that our supreme object in life is to please God, to please him only, and to please him always and in everything. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask for your spirit now to strengthen us in this way. Give us confidence in what you've called us to be and what you've called us to do. Help us to rest in your good pleasure over us and to seek to please you alone, always, in everything. Father, we pray that this would be the way that we live our lives. Hear us now as we continue throughout this worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.